Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have David Bryce, General Manager and Executive of the Customer Group at Envato. In this episode, we talked about how David made the switch from a green tech business owner to a marketplace software business general manager, why Envato launched a subscription service alongside its 15-year-old transactional business, and how the two business models are treated within the company. We also discuss how they balance the supply and demand function to make sure their authors are earning a healthy income on both products, how they minimize churn and increase retention, their health metrics, and what David wished he knew about churn and retention when he first started out. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. Don't just gun for revenue in the door. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, David, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. For the listeners, David is the general manager and executive of the customer group at Envato. Envato is a private Melbourne-based 500-plus person tech company that's generated more than $800 million in earnings for its community of authors. David leads a team of 150 plus people that are responsible for acquiring, converting, and retaining more than 2 million unique customers annually. Prior to Envato, David was the founder of a green tech company focused on the development and commercialization of low carbon emission cement and concrete. So my first question for you, David, is how did you find the switch from a green tech business owner to a marketplace software business? Oh, yeah, good question uh, up front. Always had an interest in, in digital space. So uh, going back to sort of my educational background, had a digital bent to it and always thought that I would get back to something digital. Um, the way that my life evolved, it, it went into a technology space that wasn't digital. Uh, I actually have some chemistry in my background as well. So it sort of went down a more technological, technological path in that direction and we we did very well in that technology space, but ultimately what I realized when working in physical goods, uh, there are so many impediments to scaling and it became more and more obvious to me that I was a, a digital person, not a physical goods person. Very interesting as well. Like uh, I think talking about sort of transitions as well is quite a big transition, but your background as well, like going from chemistry to to tech, but ultimately having that sort of interest and intrigue and thing and discovering that that scale element, I think that's one of the greatest things around software is 
its ability to scale. And uh, that's also, I think, why subscription businesses are so beautiful because then they become predictable as well to a certain degree. Something that's interesting, and I mentioned to you before we got on the call, is like I've been an Envato customer for a long time as well. I used to use Theme Forest quite regularly back in the day when doing web designs and still continue to use it today for certain elements here and there whenever I need things. And one of the things I've noticed quite a bit of late has been this push towards a subscription business because I think traditionally, like I knew Envato as a transactional business, I needed a theme for my website. I would come to Theme Forest, I'd purchase it. I needed some music for a video producing, come and get some tunes. But I never really saw it as a subscription business. And I think lately, like it's definitely looked like there's more and more of this push. And I think definitely your team is probably the ones that are sitting uh, on this right now. And uh, as you mentioned, yeah. probably one of the biggest day-to-day challenges for you. So what is the thought process behind this? Like, How has the business itself started to evolve uh, in this direction and what motivated them to do so? Yeah, so Envato has been around for 15, just on 15 years now. Our bread and butter and, and where we've come from is themes and code. Uh, Theme Forest is our best known site. And Theme Forest remains uh, a very big player in the premium theme space. The success of Theme Forest uh, led us to some decisions about expanding Theme Forest into uh, what is now known as a Vado market. Uh, so that includes sites like Video Hive, Audio Jungle, Biojune, Graphic River, and Code Canyon. And combined, that's in, that is what we refer to as a Vado market. Um, and through that diversification process, we started to see actually different customer segments start to evolve on a Vado market. By that, I mean themes and code customers don't consume that much video and audio content. Now, that might be obvious, but the, the proof's in the pudding. You, you need to, to actually look and, and own these sites to observe those patterns. And likewise, you don't see men, a lot of consumption going the other way. So you don't see a lot of video audio people uh, going and then consuming things. The way that we then saw that evolve was they're actually quite distinct types. When you, when you think of themes and code, they're more akin to software. And then when you think about video, audio, and photos, they're more akin to stock templated items, very basic items. There's no, there's no complexity to them. And so that bears out in terms of a whole range of different ways that these items might be handled, either in a marketplace or in a subscription service. For instance, when we think through differences between themes and say video, there's very different cadences in terms of consumption patterns of those items. They have different licensing types and different licensing desires from customers. The willingness to pay for an item is vastly different. A customer is much more willing to pay for a complex piece of software in a theme than they might be for a stock video item of a particular quality. In a theme world, there's services that you might add to the theme. So, uh, for instance, a theme author would uh, look to offer support services on the back end of the particular sale. They might also look to offer hosting services. But with a sale of, a, of an individual stock video, those services just don't exist. 
And that sort of drives you then to observe the actual customer need and the, and the overall consumption need to make some decisions about what type of business model might be more suited to being able to handle these particular items. Um, so in 2016, uh, we launched a product called Invato Elements. Uh, that's our subscription service. Uh, that's been growing uh, very rapidly. It has, in total, Envato now has more, more than 300,000 subscribers. And for a single price uh, with a simple licensing um, arrangement, you can now consume a whole range of more of those stock type of, type of items that we would have traditionally sold on Graphic River or Video Hive or Audio Jungle. We do have some themes as well on, on Vado Elements, but it really has been interesting to observe those consumption patterns and, and note that they haven't really taken off in the Envato Elements model. It's been quite observable to, to see that there is indeed a preference for themes to be sold through a, a buy now type arrangement rather than a subscription. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense as well to the like sort of natural usage patterns that you would have for these types of services and uh, how regularly you would be doing them as well. So definitely on the graphic side, photos, music sort of thing, this is something that you'd be consuming a lot more regularly and a lot more frequent, even uh, if you think about it from the type of personas that would be working on these, using these elements. But it's interesting that you sort of notice this uh, throughout the process and then sort of identified an opportunity in the market when it came to the buying patterns that users had and then what would be a better a way to uh, package uh, these products and services. So you mentioned two things as well, like the, the one side of things is you have this marketplace business and then you have a subscription business. And do you see them as distinct entities in that? So like those are the two types of models you have where the marketplace is really your transactional and then you have uh, the subscription business on the side. Like how do you treat those two businesses internally as a company? Uh, are they prioritized in different ways? Like are there different team structures set up to support them? Yes, yeah, so they, are, they are set up as separate business units, but they do uh, have a common uh, leadership. So for instance, I'm responsible for both the outcomes on the marketplace model and the subscription model. There's a deliberate choice that we've made there in that there's, there's a part of this in that we are disrupting our own products. With, with the marketplace model, where we're coming along with a subscription and going, well, we believe that certain customers that, are, that were transacting on market would be better suited to actually a subscription service. And therefore, we need to present that subscription service within the market shop front uh, to those customers because we believe ultimately that that will be a better outcome for our community and, and the customers in general. So a lot of our focus as a business is around our community of authors and delivering value for those authors. We have around 25,000 authors earning on our platform every month. And it's ultimately, it's, it's up to us to get the balance right between identifying customers that would prefer and do indeed like to transact in single purchase behavior versus those that would prefer and benefit from being on a subscription service. There's a lot of data that we use and a lot of analytics that we're looking at to try and really pinpoint those behaviors and, and how to actually 
effectively communicate to that customer that actually there is within this ecosystem, there is a better product for your need. Something that we spend a lot of time trying to be as we've got some broad-based measures, don't to be fair, but we also try to be quite specific with certain customers and try and migrate that that value across. That value. Yeah, it, it sounds like there's a whole lot of complexity that goes into making a decision like this. Uh, and just thinking through some thoughts in my head as well, there's like sort of how do you decide and prioritize decisions uh, to move to the subscription business? Was it sort of where you felt that there was an opportunity to increase the LTV from a specific customer segment and then uh, started going down this path? Like how did you identify the opportunity? I think you mentioned as well, like in some cases, it's just really is better for the customer. So how are you prioritizing this decision to begin with? Like did you just see this opportunity where there was um, some money being left on the table from customers you could potentially monetize uh, over a long period of time and want to do move in that direction? Like what were those initial discussions or thoughts like in the beginning? Yeah, I mean, there's an LTV component, but it wasn't the primary driving force here. The driving force was observing the usage patterns on market and seeing that a number of customers were having um, trouble becoming aware of the the breadth of the content that was available on on our marketplace model. So, for instance, a Video Hive customer would arrive at Video Hive via a search or via a referral link. And they'd come in and they'd see Video Hive and would be like, wow, that's that's some fantastic content. Really interested in that. I'll buy that content and then I'll leave. The interesting part about observing those patterns of behavior was that that customer would may, may make a decision to go and look at our audio marketplace. But it was likely that they unless they're a sophisticated user and a high consumption user, wouldn't connect that dot. They would be focused on consuming in the the video space alone. The big advantage for us on the subscription service is that that is a, a holistic product. It's a single product that allows us to be able to cross promote and to be able to basically meet an un, almost an unmet need from the customer who would come along and say, hey, well, that's really interesting. I love this video content. Oh, but by the way, here are four audio items that you hadn't necessarily thought about. And now that it's in a subscription and that subscription happens to be unlimited download, well, now you can navigate around this site and experience that audio content and recognize that it's actually valuable to you. And that increases the overall stickiness of our um, product offering, but also meets a need that the customer uh, may have had, but didn't know that we could provide. Uh, you provided, the, yeah. The actual thing. Yeah. So in some ways, almost like an activation you know, to your other products as well, this uh, subscription services really raising the awareness, getting people more into what Invato provides overall. I, I do see yeah. that from the outside as well, because in the beginning, uh, I knew Theme Forest, and uh, it's not the easier. It wasn't the easiest back then, at least, to be able to discover and understand everything that was available to you. I think over time, it looked like you did a lot of experimentation around bringing the services closer together, trying to raise the awareness. But uh, it's yeah, interesting. Look, yeah. our strength is our breadth. That that's sort of the thing that, from a content perspective, our strength is our breadth. Yeah, and that wasn't necessarily obvious to 
to a, a large number of our customers, which was the, the interesting part about what we were observing. It becomes more obvious when you, you tie it all together into a single subscription and then release that value in a, a single, you know, the, the things that we tried to deliver on with the Elements product was really keep things simple, simple licensing, unlimited use, really good value, lots of quality and breadth in the, in the content so that there's a lot of that decision-making that is required on the, the buy now marketplace model that gets removed in, in that simplicity of that subscription model. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and you mentioned a few things as well in terms of bringing it to, uh, to the concept of retention now and how you view it at Invato is that it almost feels like you've got a whole lot of, I won't call them retention problems, but retention areas where you need to focus because you have one one side, you have the marketplace where it's important for you to be retaining the content creators, as you mentioned, like the 20, 25,000 monthly content contributors. Then you need to be retaining customers to keep those happy. And that's just from a marketplace perspective. And then now you have your subscription side of your business as well, where you both need to do the same thing in this case, again, is like really making sure that you're retaining your subscribers uh, to your service and uh, that in turn is able to sort of satisfy and keep the content contributors happy on the back of it. And I imagine those are also different models in the way that the content creators make their money as well. And how do you go about this then in general? Like how are your attention initiatives uh, focused? Uh, where do you see like the biggest opportunities or maybe the biggest areas for improvement at the company? Yeah, you, I mean, you're spot on with the, the nature of that transactional relationship. The nature of the industry that we work in, the digital goods industry, is that it is transactional by nature. The It's very common for our customers to have subscriptions with other providers. That's just effectively par for course in the industry. Um, so there is a, is a really broad um, set of choices available uh, to customers. And we recognize that and we try to build ourselves into their, their workflow and their day-to-day as one of the we we think about it as having one of those must-have products. It's just part one of the products that you would have as your uh, as your suite of various creative digital asset marketplace. Well, in this in this case, elements subscriptions. So the way that we have tried to differentiate ourselves from others in order to improve our retention and to minimize our churn away from that because there are obviously those competing interests we have the breadth which is what i highlighted before we then have tried to be broad but also have a particular quality bar in the items that we provide one thing we've observed in market is that there are a number of uh, providers that have looked to really expand their library and by expand i mean they have hundreds of millions of items. And in, in that world, you need to have very, very good quality search and discovery tooling in order to be able to actually help the customer find the item that they want amongst a whole lot of 
of items that may not meet their need. For us, we've been quite conscientious about maintaining a rigorous quality bar so that when you're navigating that elements product in particular, you are regularly seeing items that are objectively good quality, even if they're not items that you would necessarily know how to use yourself or uh, know what to do with, you would be looking at them and, and your eye in particular for something like a video or for photo would pick up that it, it's aesthetically uh, appealing. That means that we're not aiming to be, we're not aiming for the super large library and we're not aiming to be the specialist. We're not aiming to uh, deliver on every faceted type of search that you could look to for a particular audio file, for instance. We're looking to have a library that's good quality, meets most of your needs and regularly hits the mark in terms of being able to help you quickly find an item that can help you fulfill your, primarily in our case, a work need. We have a lot of professional customers. The, the things we then do to kind of de-risk that position in terms of that competitiveness in, that, in the industry is we make sure that we're priced really well. We're at $33 a month, which is significantly below what you might be looking at on other sites. We then allow you to use, we have quite broad, broad licensing rights and you can use the content in an unlimited fashion. And so that's all part of, again, flagging what I did, what I mentioned before. It just keeps it, keeps it simple, keeps it easy, keeps it clean, and you can rely on it then to just be there and work when you need it. And that's, that's been pretty much, pretty much the core of what we've been trying to do from the product perspective to differentiate it from some of the specialist and some of the more cluttered offerings that are available in the market. Nice. And then I'm thinking a little bit in terms of like the retention from a value perspective for both sides uh, of this uh, deal. So the one is the customers that you have who use and consume this content. And then the other is the ones that create this content. And I think in a transactional model, uh, it feels at least from the surface that they would uh, be earning more money from those one-off sales as opposed to the, the subscription service. And how does this sort of work? Because in the sense, maybe people are consuming a lot more from the subscription service. Do you see a pattern where you have certain amount of customers who use your subscription service that maybe uh, get maximum value and maybe become a cost uh, detractor? And then you get a lot of customers that end up using underutilizing the subscription, which sort of balances it out so that at the end, your uh, content contributors are receiving relatively the same amount. Or have you noticed sort of like a difference in the unit economics and how the business works from between the transaction and subscription? So observations have been that we've, we've been quite conscious of managing authors' expectations around earnings on the Elements platform. And we've also been quite aware of a need to demonstrate to our authors that there's there's value there and in it, it's it's a mixed bag in terms of uh, and I'll talk through the model a little bit on elements because it, it'll help conceptualize it on elements you 
you are apportioned based on the number of downloads of items, you're apportioned a percentage of the total pool every month. On market, it's obviously based via the transaction and the author receives a, a payment when every transaction goes through. We found that it doesn't always marry up. So some authors earn more on market than they do on elements. But other authors with very similar content will earn more on elements than they do on market. And we've actually can pretty consistently found that there is a, a positive story coming out of the elements model where we've been keen to ensure that authors are well remunerated on that subscription product in comparison to their market or market earnings. There are the control mechanism that I'm flagging is that we've been quite selective about the authors that we allow onto elements. It's there are many more authors on the market product than there are on the elements product. And therefore we've been able to balance that supply and demand function to be able to ensure that the authors are, are generating a healthy income from that platform. It's very interesting. And just like as you're monitoring this and seeing how the impact is and who's the benefactors from it as well. Interesting that you've seen differences as well between the two where some people can be more successful as a transaction, others as subscription. And like you say, others that have similar content, seeing similar results on both. But the, the next thing that I was interested in the subscription move now as well. So trying to go in more in this direction, get more customers towards it so they can discover more of the product and extract the value is thinking about metrics for this side of the business and the subscription out of the business. How do you view sort of retention in, in lights? Like what are some of the leading indicators you're looking for in a good customer? Do you have any specific activation metrics that you say, okay, once a customer subscribed and done X, Y, or Z, like the, the likelihood is they're going to retain. And then on a monthly basis, we expect them to do X or Y to stay healthy. Like, have you set any health metrics? Like, what does that look like? Have you mapped it out yet? Uh, we have. I'm not going to advocate that it's perfect, but there's we do have a lot of analysis around particularly early stage on-site behavioural patterns and we have a lot of understanding. We have an increasing understanding of download behaviours, uh, which when married up with some of the navigational paths that certain customers are taking, it, it, it ends up being a pretty compelling point of discussion about a, a persona or a particular customer type that we're looking for. The, the most, we've, we've seen, okay, we'll start with the initial on-site behaviour. The customers that have intent when they land on our site, the element site, have a very different behaviour early on to customers that have low intent. And by that, I mean, I'll define intent, but by that, I mean, a customer that's looking to buy and really wants to, to consume the products that are the assets that are available on Elements will quickly have a look at two or three different item pages. They'll look at, they'll go in deep and, and assess a lot of information. They'll spend time on those item pages. And then they'll very quickly try to navigate towards the pricing page. A, an individual with low intent tends to click a lot. They will look at maybe 
10 items, but very in a very shallow manner. So they'll spend very little time on those item pages. And that's the type of customer that we, we try to get uh, some information about, maybe an email address or some point of contact so that we can reach back to them at another time. But generally, you can assume that those customers won't be the type that will end up really engaging with the product. Now, there's a big trick in there, which is to try and work out how to convert low intent customers into high intent customers. And that's obviously a big part of what we work on. The other thing that is pretty clear to us is that the download patterns of uh, monthly subscribers compared to annual subscribers is just vastly different. Um, annual subscribers have much, you know, generically annual subscribers have lower churn. Uh, they have less decision points. They're more committed to the product. And you can see that in a, in a monthly cohorts in particular, but the ones that are not particularly committed to the product, they will often arrive, download a few items, probably the items that they were looking for initially. And then they might, if they're, if they're likely to churn, then they will have low engagement from that point forward until the point at which they decide to make, make a move. A more interesting pattern is with the annual subscribers, they will, off, they will make the commitment and they might have the same pattern of usage. They will, they will download you know, two or three items the same. They will consume the products that they are after. But then you notice the usage pattern start to tick back up over time. So they'll come back to the site a week later and then they'll come back to the site three days after the week and start to really engage with the value that it, it brings. So for us, there's a, there's a lot of observation in, in that regard in that sometimes we have customers that are engaging in a way that would suggest that they're an annual, they, they would benefit more from being an annual subscriber. And we look to find ways to incentivize them to essentially move from being a monthly subscriber to an annual subscriber because ultimately that's to their benefit. They'll get a discount in purchasing the annual subscription and we get the benefit because we've acquired that customer for the year and, and most likely beyond that because we've, we know that that customer is, is a good customer with high intent. Yeah, it's, it's interesting as well that what you're describing in terms of that monthly customer and uh, coming in and downloading a few products and then not engaging. It almost feels like in that case is they were probably better suited for the transactional model, but maybe just found things a little bit more appealing on, on the Envato side. And those more people that are more committed to a yearly are more of those people who are taking it as like their job or it's a serious thing that they're ongoing and needing to extract that value continuously. If you're a content yeah. creator or there is that i mean the other thing to note I, I, and again cycling back to the the price point the the element subscription is at 33 dollars a month which if you are looking to purchase you know a few products off the transactional marketplace model uh, you may find that it's indeed economically beneficial for you to just subscribe for a month yeah. it's not something that we always see and the the some of the more interesting decisions are made by customers that 
actually continue to purchase on our marketplace model and spend more money on the marketplace model than um, actually going and subscribing and acquiring the same content from, from the elements product, i.e. being economically irrational. That's based on a level of comfort with their product, with the product they've been using and, and their existing behaviours as opposed to you know, necessarily completely understanding how the greater benefit that they could arrive at through the subscription service. And then how much of your work then revolves around trying to bring those types of buyers over to the subscription service? Like if you had to define the business, would you say like the priority is move towards the subscription service or are you still sort of sitting in the middle where uh, both businesses are really growing strong and there's no preference for one over the other. You just try to find the best situation for the customer and move them in that direction. Like, Or would you say there's a preference for subscription? It's it's easy to describe in, in some ways and more complex than that in others in that the higher priced items on the transactional marketplace are, are likely to be consumed on them on that marketplace and not necessarily yet fit a subscription service. The reason being that an author will look at the item and it may be selling for $50 on Video Hive and it'll be a relatively complex item. It might be more akin to that kind of software world uh, where they may be able to provide services or they may ancillary revenue that might exist around that product. And they look at that and they go, well, I could put this item potentially on, on elements, but how does that, that, that balance, as we were talking about before, how does that revenue model stack up? Is it in my best interest to have that content on the elements side of things? So we, there's a real delineation there in that the more stocky, so more like a photo, more like a simple video item, the lower the cost of the item, the more likely it is to be something that at this stage is totally suited towards the uh, subscription model. And the more complex the item, the more the higher priced it is, the more likely it is to be favorably consumed on the marketplace model. There are those breakpoints, obviously, you sort of start to enter that murky ground around the 20 to $30 mark for items where uh, that really comes to us to sort of demonstrate the value of, of both sides of the equation. And, and ultimately, there's discussions that happens with the authors in that phase where we are encouraging them to at least be on both and, and see for themselves about where that balance in terms of reward and effort and return um, sits. Um, and that's the complex interactions. You're dealing with a... a, a an author who has their own business and their own way of thinking about the world and the way that they want to live and generate their own revenue and then applying that through our shop fronts. So there's, there's a fair bit of handling that happens in there. Yeah, I can imagine a lot of complex relationship management as well to, to get right. Yeah. Um, so the one thing I wanted to ask then as well as a follow-up is like, you know, you've been going at this for quite a while now as well, Edvato. I think it's, what is it, almost seven years now, somewhere around there, six, seven years. Um, so, and I think you've obviously in this time thought about churn and retention lots in the context of not only the marketplace, but also now in the subscription business. What's one thing like that you wish you knew when you started that you know today about churn and retention? 
the there are there's so much information online about trend retention, and it really does come down to, in my mind anyway, th these are the things that I I didn't know at the time. I'd come out of a, a different industry, and uh, you you start to read about it. There are some core principles to it, as in the more capable you are of meeting a customer need and the more capable you are of meeting that customer need on an enduring basis, the more likely that customer is to, to stay with you. I mean, that's, that's kind of core to it. But applying models or, or different lines of thinking from across various parts of the digital industry often ends up in falsehoods. So you, you can't, I ran a part of our hosting business, for instance, for a few years in, in my time. And the hosting business has a very, very different churn profile to any of the digital goods business. Now, maybe that's, that's obvious, but they literally, you can't apply the logic in any way, shape or form. It's in fact, it's distracting and can lead you to false outcomes if you try to apply that across to a, um, a, a different type of business. And then even within business, like the digital asset business, we have very different churn profiles based on the personas and the individuals that we have coming, coming through. And on aggregate, you can see these patterns of behavior and, and someone that's really interested in video, once you get specific, you can start to really assess what's going on with, with that type of customer's churn behavior. But bucketing in the cohorts and trying to compare a someone who's really interested in audio compared to someone who's really interested in video compared to someone who's really interested in themes, it just it doesn't stack up. And and too often there is an aggregation of information that would say, oh, your your churn profile should look like X or this means Y. Yeah. The, the truth is that, to me anyway, the truth is the data speaks for itself. Um, there are rules of thumb available, but ultimately you know, you've got to really stick to that kind of positioning around understanding your customer need and being specific about targeting their need. Yeah, I love that. I think obviously it's one of the premises of the show and it's one of those things when I see like churn benchmarks, I think they're absolute bullshit because uh, it's so very difficult uh, to sort of categorize and see where you stack up because there's so many factors and influences and you touched on a few, like the market that you're in, the type of customer segment you have, your stage of growth, like you can go on in many different directions and it's, it's very, you should be very cautious when you look outside to sort of get uh, insights and ways that you can improve it because ultimately there's just so many different factors that influence it. And also that the fact that you mentioned like at the real core of everything, it's really just about delivering value to your customers. I think you can't get any more simple and straightforward than that. And I think that's a message that's often overlooked is this really like this problem is so simple. It's just make sure that our customers are getting value and continue to extract value and they shouldn't be churning because Logically, in anyone's mind, if they have a problem and your solution solves that problem, why would they uh, be wanting to leave? But I have one last question because I see we're running up on time as well. I ask everybody on the show. And let's imagine a hypothetical scenario. Uh, you join a new company and general retention is not doing good at this company. And the CEOs come to you and said uh, they want to try to turn things around. Uh, they want to see some results. And they're looking to, to see an impact in the first 90 days. 
what would you want to be doing with your time in that period to try and uh, turn things around a bit for the company? I like to start with data. So I'd be, I'd be grabbing as much information as I could around the usage pattern on sites and the way that customers are currently engaging with the product and trying to find points in which we had drop off or uh, any observable feedback that we could get. You could, in 90 days, you may be able to pull together some user feedback that give you some qualitative information that could support that data and that assessment. But ultimately, if you can if you can get in there and, and see uh, a specific usage pattern in particular that may be leading leading to churn, uh, then that's that's where I'd start. There's so often, if if the business is delivering on something that is has value and, and does deliver that value, but then they're managing to acquire a customer and have them leave, then that points to a failing on the way that the product is actually enabling that customer to uh, enact on that, like to find that value, to use to use it properly, the utility that they're looking for. And there may be one, two, three, you know, in, in bad cases, there might be you know, tens of things that are contributing to an experience for that customer that leads them to, to go elsewhere. You'd have to be looking at, at the core proposition if it was really bad, it'd be, more like one of the core promises that you would be failing on and and that is where yeah that's where i'd start if it was a a three month three month piece so just starting with the data like obviously making sure that uh, your problem your solution is solving a problem a core problem and then if it is like where is it failing to meet and help customers that are churning as a result so so it sounds a little bit like looking into activation and uh, removing blockers from customers to make sure they're able to extract that value as much as possible. Uh, It's definitely something we talk about a lot on the show as well. And yeah, so I I think that's, it's been a pleasure having you today, David. I don't know if there's anything like final thoughts you want to leave uh, the listeners with. Uh, How can they keep up to speed? Is there anything they should be looking out for before we go? Look, you know, digital goods is an interesting space it has its own its own quirks i think maybe one thing i'd encourage users to to go and read actually is uh, a book called information rules by uh, carl shapiro it was it's getting old now it's actually it was written back in 1998 but it's a book that looks at it from a very economic perspective it's not it's not for uh, a particularly creative user but it looks at the economics of digital goods and it looks at how these models tend to, to work over time. And I found it a particularly valuable entry point into um, the digital goods world. Nice. All right. We'll definitely add that to the show notes as well. So if you're interested, uh, there'll be a link on the site to that book. Great. Well, it's been a pleasure having you today, David. Thank you so much for joining and wish you best of luck now going forward. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, 
I would love to hear from you and you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.